We made this. Friends. Brothers and sisters. Who can regale me and my queen with some myth? Or tale? Welcome to Real Talk, the official movie podcast of the We Made This Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ashley Thomas, aka The Nerdy Blogger, and Real Talk is a show designed to react to both new cinema and also to find a way to talk about the movies we love, like, and maybe sometimes loathe. In this episode, we're talking about The Green Knight, which is directed by David Lowery, stars Dev Patel as Sir Gowan. Uh, Ralph Ineson uh, as the Green Knight, Sean Harris as King, and something that's not mentioned clearly in the film or on Internet Movie Database, but uh, Sean Harris is King Arthur, that King Arthur. Uh, we've got Kate Dickey as the Queen, uh, also known as Queen Guinevere. We've also got Alicia Vikander, Joel Edgerton, and Sarita Chowdhury. So a little bit of background for those who may or may not be familiar. The Green Knight is based on the 14th century Middle English chivalric poem called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And if you're unfamiliar with the, that particular genre, a chivalric romance typically involves a hero who goes on a quest which tests his prowess. So, Ian, what familiarity do you have with um, our director, David Lowery, or anybody in the cast? Well, I have some familiarity with Dave Lowry. I think he first kind of came to people's attention with his adaptation of Pete's Dragon, which I, I still actually have not seen. But he I came to my it. attention with his film A Ghost Story, which came out several years ago, starring Rooney Mara and, well, Casey Affleck, but he's under a sheet most of the time, so <laughs> you can't really tell. But the uh, that was sort of really my introduction to him and his follow up, the old man and the gun, as well, and then uh, and then this. So yeah, with the exception of uh, Pete's Dragon, I've seen his last his last few movies. Cool. Yeah. So I believe this might be my first go around with David Lowry. I've heard of all of those movies that you've mentioned, and I've heard very good things about all of them. But alas, <laughs> they've not quite uh, uh, made it to my uh, my uh, to the top of my watch list. So. Uh, yeah, very different vibe for both of those. Yeah, than, uh, sort yeah. of like epic, chivalric, romantic kind of project that he's thrown up on the screen. Very different vibe here. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, now, were you familiar with anybody in the cast at all? Oh yeah, you did ask me about the cast. Definitely, mm-hmm. Dev Patel. He's been, gosh, 
probably Slumdog Millionaire was where everybody first encountered him, myself included. And uh, he's definitely popped up on my radar a few times. I remember seeing him in Lion a few years back. I know he was in Personal History of David Copperfield, I think just last year. He's He's been in quite a few things that I've seen, and I always enjoy him. The other folks, Ralph Innocent, Sean Harris, Kate Dickey, uh, they've all popped up on things like Game of Thrones and The Witch, things, other projects that I've seen them in. Alicia Vikander as well. Joel Edgerton I was familiar with for, from a couple of other things. And Sarita Chowdhury, who plays Gawain's mother, I think, I can't tell you exactly where I've seen her, but she has one of those faces uh, of, of character actors who you, you've seen in a bunch of things, even if you can't place them. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I knew of Dev Patel, of his more recent films, the only one I, that I was that I have actually seen is Chappie, uh, which is a neat little sci-fi flick. Would recommend if you're into sci-fi at all. I think that one was a little undersung, uh, but he, he was good in that. I have really wanted to watch The Personal History of David, David Copperfield, partially because uh, my hero, Gwendolyn Christie, <laughs> plays uh, Jane Murdstone in that, the villain. So it, very curious about that. I've heard great things about Lion, and I am one of like the five people on earth that still hasn't seen Slumdog Millionaire. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, see, that's what I get. I shouldn't have assumed. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, um, I have weird gaps in my my movie viewing. But, Me too, uh, man. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So same, same as you. Um, I knew uh, Ralph Ineson and Kate Dickey a little better uh, from uh, Game of Thrones, but also really love them in The Witch, which is The Witch is one of the best like modern horror films I've seen in the past, you know, five, six, seven years would definitely recommend. That's another A24 film as well. Yeah. Dave Eggers does a a really good job with that. And did you see the lighthouse? No, uh, there's one particular scene uh, that I heard about in the lighthouse. That's kind of, and I love horror movies, uh, Uh but that's kind of given me a little bit of pause uh, to watch it. So I'll probably watch it once just because I, I really, uh, respect uh, Egger's directorial style. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll get we'll, to that we'll, one we'll eventually. We'll have to chat about it off mic. I'm curious what the scene is, but uh, we don't have to yeah. go into that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was something I was like, ooh, I don't know that I want to watch that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but um, Alicia Vikander, now, in, what immediately came to mind with her was uh, she was in that uh, remake of Tomb Raider uh, a few years ago. Um, but she's also, if I remember correctly, she is the um, the robot in um, Ex Machina. Oh, Ex Machina. Yes, thank you. Um, is that correct? Yeah, Ex Machina. She was in that, and uh, I also know her from. I think she was in uh, a Danish movie. The Affair was probably the first thing I saw her in, saw her in with. She was in that with Mads Mikkelsen, actually. Uh, oh, cool. Another okay. one of my favorites, and uh, yeah, she she's popped up in a few things. She's always good. I like her a lot. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Joel Edgerton. I think I probably know him best from, again, another, what I think is another underrated sci-fi movie. Uh, I believe he was in Midnight Special. Oh, yeah. You're right. Yep. yep. Um, really, really dig uh, Midnight Special. Uh, that's a good one. If you like Stranger Things, you'll probably like Midnight Special. Different sort of vibe, but just a really great film. Really thoughtful. Really pretty. Uh, like yeah. I thought it was like a really beautifully shot film. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Joel, Joel Edgerton does a really good job picking his project. He doesn't appear in a ton of movies, but whenever he does, I feel like I always think he does a really good job. Yeah. He, um, he, he makes a lot of really interesting, uh, choices probably. Oh, the other thing I really know him well from is, uh, loving. Yeah. Um, 
Yep, he was great in that too. That's a great film. Anyway, yeah. So sounds like you and I are both have some pretty pretty solid familiarity with uh, some of the the main cast. There was one other person that I failed to mention that I think is really important. The lady who plays uh, Winifred. She's Infus Nest in uh, Solo. Yes, in, so- in the Solo film. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I am blanking on her name. I'm I am too. Her up right now. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Fail. But yeah, I. One of the things I really appreciate about her, whose name I will recall in a second, Aaron Kellyman. I am so sorry, Aaron Kellyman. I love you. Please forgive me. Is that every character that she plays, I think, is really interesting. She's good at picking roles that I think are just, you know, they're different. She's not afraid to do something different. Um, and I can really respect that. Yeah, I thought she was uh, effective as as Winifred. She has a, a certain screen presence. She has a bit of a look that isn't very, I don't want to say unconventional. That sounds like she's not weird looking. She's beautiful, but, but she just has, she's distinct. It, it's a distinct yeah. look that I think, especially in a role like this, where there's something a little supernatural, a little otherworldly going on with her character. I think she has uh, a good screen presence for that. I, I will say, I can't think of anyone in Hollywood that looks like her, not even close. So I, I really enjoy uh, watching anything that she's in just because I know she's always going to do something interesting and different. So, yeah, so we've, we've got, you know, pretty broad familiarity with, with the cast. How about a 24, a 24 has only been making films for a, you know, a little less than a decade. And, and so they've put out some of the biggest and most like, I think influential films of maybe the past five years. So um, have you seen a lot of other a 24 movies? Yeah, A bunch. They're an indie movie kind of powerhouse in in terms of what they what they put out. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and list all the A24 releases, but the the movies we were previously talking about like The Witch and The Lighthouse, those were both A24 releases. I think Ghost Story and maybe Old Man and the Gun, but definitely Ghost Story, David Lowry's uh previous film there uh was also an A24 release. So he has a pre uh, an established relationship mm-hmm. with them too. I think a lot of this current crop of indie and and especially like indie horror directors have been Ari Aster is another one. His last two films, Midsommar and Hereditary, both I think were A24 releases. That's so yeah. yeah, there's a lot that's come out of them for over the last few years. That's been really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ex Machina was also an A24 Ex, uh, film. Good call. Yep. Um, yeah. I've, I've been really impressed with every A24 film I've seen. I've, I've predominantly seen their horror and like sci-fi horror. Uh, though I will say, uh, their drama is really good too. Uh, I don't know. Did you get to catch the uh, mm-hmm. the farewell with Aquafina? Yes, another good one. Yeah, great film. Yeah. So I all, overall, this is a studio that when I, whenever I see a trailer and it says like, oh, this is an A twenty four film, I, it makes me sit up and take notice. Agreed. Um, Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I and you mentioned Ari Aster. I adore his work. I think he's a brilliant example of like just an intertextual director. Mm-hmm. Um and a storyteller. And I love his film so much that I wish I could watch them more than once without right. like giving myself permanent emotional <laughs> damage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's rough. Yeah. yeah. David Lowry, Ari Aster and Dave, Dave Eggers, I think are a, a, a trio of really, really interesting directors, all kind of roughly the same age telling really compelling stories. A, a lot of them in, in the horror space. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad there's um you know, and I love the horror genre. I will watch slasher films, I will watch uh, suspense thrillers, I'll watch, you know, 
almost any genre except scary children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> scary children and torture porn are things I, I can't do real well with. And uh, even though um, Hereditary checked off, you know, at least one of those boxes for me, um, I, I still I love it. I think it's um, it's one of my favorite horror movies that, that I wish I could watch again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That was a theatrical experience. I'll never forget. Oh, for sure. For sure. A24 stuff on the whole, I'm, I'm really impressed with them. So I was really excited to see that they were the ones handling uh, the Green Knight. So leading into that a little bit with Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, you know, we were spitballing a little bit before we hit record, uh, but I've read the Green uh, Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, but it's been 15, 16 years, and it's been a little while for you as well. Yeah, I never read the poem per se, but certainly the story was one that I, I, I familiarized myself with when I, was, when I was a kid, and I was reading all about knights and about the Knights of the Round Table, and they all had they all had their own sections in this book I was into when I was a kid and, and his, his story, this story uh, was in there. So that was my kind of introduction and really my only familiarity with the story before I watched it. And that was probably 20 plus years ago now. Yeah. So while we have some familiarity with the source material, you know, this isn't going to be a discussion where we're going to be critiquing how this functions as an adaptation per se. I, I think I think we're going to really take a look at this as a nice, just a study of what does the film do on its own? And yeah, <laughs> and it, it seems very self-conscious of the fact that it's an adaptation and and one of a series of adaptations. You know, you sort of get clued into that with the title cards. You know, when when you see Sir Gawain, you see it in all these different fonts and they flash and there's maybe five or six different versions of the the title, the first half of it, Sir Gawain and dot, dot, dot. And, you know, then we get right into the movie. So you sort of are introduced to the idea that, yeah, this is just one of a series of adaptations of this story. This is just one of a number of times that it's been told. And here's this one. Right. Yeah. I actually really liked that. I, I, I like that the movie was a little bit, I don't know, the title cards kind of broke the, the, the fourth wall a little mm-hmm. for me. And oh, I sure. liked, I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it actually made it function really well. I felt like I was watching a play almost when it did that. And I liked that. So I, I don't know um, how that made you feel, but yeah, like I, I, I agree with you. The uh, it's, it is very aware. Yes, this is an adaptation. It, you know, blatantly says this is an ad- adaptation of the poem. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely aware that it's an adaptation and, and it, it that it's this kind of story that's told in a very episodic way. You know, it's, That is one way in which the storytelling is kind of adapted from the source material in that traditional act structures were not really a thing when romantic poems were being written about these, these, these characters. So you do have stories being told in a more episodic way. And this movie is told in that way as well, where you have literally on screen, here's the chapter of, here's the title of this chapter of the story. And then here's the title of this chapter of the story. And it proceeds (laughs) in this very structured, um, you know, there's some loose connective thread between, you know, from one story to the next, but they're very episodic, just like epic poems are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that that's an interesting uh, comparison to draw there, since this you know this is based on an epic poem. Um, but uh, having those title cards in between, yeah, that does frame it in that way, and that's really that's a really interesting thought I'd not considered before. So good point. One of the things that I really enjoyed um, about the Green Knight is just the aesthetic overall. Um, I liked the the color scheme. I liked just the way they chose uh, to to do the sets um, to shoot in these big open fields. Um, I love like the forest imagery. There's there's a, a lot to to really enjoy. Um, about the aesthetic of the film uh, with the costuming and just all the, all the visual stuff. I'm very much a a visual person. So for me watching uh, the green Knight was, it was, it was a visual feast. So uh, do you have any thoughts on the aesthetic of the film? Oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it, I I, I feel bad saying this because I know that some of the folks who are going to be listening to this are based in the UK and I don't believe they're going to get a theatrical, uh, release of this, unfortunately, but if at any point in the future this does uh, become available in the theaters, it's worth seeing there if you can. Um, we should also probably both say we. I, I loved this movie. <laughs> I realize we're like twenty minutes in the conversation. We, we may not have reali- <laughs> revealed how we felt about this movie. I love this movie. I think I think it might not be for everybody, but I think that it is well worth seeing and seeing if it is for you. Um, I don't know if you want to get your your sort of I don't know, rating or review of the, the the movie up top out of the way now, but um, that's sort of my my two cents is everybody should go see this and we can get back to talking about it now. <laughs> I I also had a really fun time with the film. I was fortunate enough to see it twice in the theater, um, which uh, was just really really great, really great fun. Uh, I just I double checked Internet Movie Database and you know unless something has changed. Uh, somewhat recently, they're still listing the UK release as September 24th. So maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will be in the theater um, over in the UK. So here's hoping folks, y'all are able to catch it in the theater because I think it's totally worth it um, as a theatrical viewing experience. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons is because like you were just saying, the aesthetic of this movie is insane. It's just a showstopper, both visually, but also like orally, like the visual and oral landscape uh, that is being created here just feels mythic. It feels huge. I know the budget of this movie wasn't enormous, um, but it has that sort of feel to it because of, like you mentioned, the costume design, the color palette that was being chosen, the sound design, and that the soundtrack itself uh, all work together to create this really epic feel. Like yeah. it, it feels like you're like you're watching myth making, like you're watching this. Uh, you know, so many visual cues that you know you're watching this sort of almost like filmed literature, you know, it kind of has that feeling to it. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about the aesthetic and I think something that I just kind of felt watching the film, um, a friend of mine watched it and he said like, Oh, this is definitely a Christmas movie. And I, you know, at that point I had not gotten to see it yet. And uh, I was confused by like, this is a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. And yes, it does take place at Christmas, but at the same time, the aesthetic of the film, like, I just, I feel like I'm 
cozying up by the fire with like a blanket and I'm wearing my favorite bathrobe and I've got like a, a mug of hot coffee or hot tea or cho- hot chocolate or something. Got a nice warm mug with me. Um, and I'm settling in to listen to a good story. Yeah. And um, look at all the green and red. Of course, it's a Christmas movie. Absolutely. So um, I'm very much a a um, a person who celebrates the holidays in order. So I go, you know, Halloween, Thanksgiving, then Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so uh, maybe uh, maybe after Thanksgiving, I'll uh, this one will be av- more readily available digitally, or um, maybe have like a physical media release at that point. So, oh, that would um, be great. Yeah, I would. I would love that to to be able to watch this at Christmas. I think that would be awesome, and just another nice um, non traditional Christmas flick. So, Definitely, and I'm and I'm totally down for watching all the the traditional Christmas flicks too, for that matter. Oh yeah, um, but uh, it, it is nice uh, to have something that's a little bit off the the beaten path. So yeah, this definitely is in in what was for me the best possible way. Um, yeah. I will I will say I think people should be aware that this is not you know we've talked about how we both like fantasy and you know medieval imagery and settings you know this is not a sort of like action-packed medieval fantasy like sword and sorcery type story there is some sword play there is plenty of magic but um people should just kind of go into this movie aware that they're not getting that kind of cinematic experience for the, for, for the following 90 minutes, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So if you want a movie that feels cozy for lack of better terminology, but a, a, a film that f- feels cozy to watch, um, you want to you know wrap up with your favorite blanket and get a, your favorite mug of whatever, um, settle in for, uh, a good movie in your comfy pants. This is <laughs> this is a, a good choice. But you were talking about the uh, aural aesthetic of the um, of the film, uh, like the musical choices and the sound editing. Um, I'm checking out the um, composer uh, of the score. His name is Daniel Hart. He um, also composed the score for Pete's Dragon. Um, he also, uh, did the score for, uh, the old man and the gun and a ghost story. So he's worked yeah, with the regular Lowry, collaborators, yeah. uh, several times. Um, also done some other interesting things like, um, uh, looks like he did the music for the exorcist TV series a few years ago. Okay. Um, so he's definitely got some horror roots. Looks like he's going to do, uh, the upcoming Peter Pan and Wendy film as well. So. Um, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I think that's also going to be David Lowery. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. If I'm, I, if I'm remembering that correctly. You I'm... are remembering that correctly. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. They neat. they obviously like working together. Yeah. yeah. And he's going to be getting into, David Lowery is going to be getting back into the sort of Disney Disney space. Um, hopefully they give him a whole boatload of money so that he can keep making fun off the wall projects like this. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm here for it. Very cool. Very cool. Any other thoughts on the aesthetic of the film? No, not specifically. Um, other than to call out again, like the really strong use of color uh, at, at times to indicate, especially when when magic or something mysterious is going on. Like there's some there's some pretty trippy, psych almost psychedelic sequences 
at certain points in the movie and color plays a strong role in, in those sequences. So, uh, yeah, just again, like really strong visual sense in this movie. For sure. And yeah, and with that, with that visual color palette, um, the aesthetic of the film, both, um, visually and, and, uh, and, and, you know, through the score, um, it really helped to create a dark tone for the film, uh, which was, not something I was expecting entirely. I, I kind of figured it probably would just because it's a 24. Um, a lot of their films tend to have that darker tone, but um, how, how did the dark tone of the film, did that work for you? Uh, did you like it? Not like it as much thought it could be different. No, I definitely liked it. Not necessarily because I needed it to be dark, but I think there is a, you know, it, there's a sense of this not being a Camelot that is that is well that is thriving you know this feels like kind of a kingdom in you know maybe some sort of decline or it just feels um like the environment is sort of oppressive and 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 run down and old and this overall you know, sense of dread and doom really, you know, it, it, it bears down on the character as, at the, as it bears down on the audience. And you see the effect of these trials as he's, you know, put through the ringer of, of a string of failures. And at the very end, well, you know, we'll, we'll get there, but has, has come to realize certain things about himself and his place in the world and, and, you know, what, what, what different choices he needs to start making. And I think that if it weren't for the, the dark tone of the movie, like his, you know, his journey wouldn't be as impactful. Like this character needed a dark journey to reach the, reach the end he reaches. It had to be this kind of journey. For sure. And one of the things I, I think is really appropriate about that dark tone is uh, Gowan knows that he is marching to his death. Yeah. Like he took the green Knight's head off, you know, he's like, ah, ha ha, I've won your game. And then, you know, nobody really expects a beheaded man to get up again. Right. <laughs> yeah. We, we should maybe provide a little bit of context for that, for people who aren't familiar with the, with the story. Um, you know, the, the, the basic setup for, what happens for most of the movie is that this this green knight, this mysterious kind of half wood, half man, half tree, half man, kind of an ant, uh, kind of mm -hmm. a small ant on a horse, uh, rides into the court of King Arthur and challenges the bravest knight there to a friendly um, a, f a friendly contest, essentially, or, or, or friendly. Um, uh, I forget what they call it. Wager. Uh, they call, they, they, he, like, he calls it a game. Okay, yeah, a Christmas game. That's what he calls it. It's yeah. a, a, a Christmas, a friendly Christmas game. And the game is this. He challenges any of uh, King Arthur's knights to uh, to land a blow on him in combat. And that if they succeed in landing a blow on him one year hence, uh, they must seek him out at this place called the Green Chapel. Uh, whereupon the Green Knight will deliver the exact same blow to uh, whomsoever of the of the Knights of the Round Table challenges him. And Dev Patel's character Sir Gawain steps forward and says, "Well, I'll do it." 
And rather than do, you know, the sort of thing that seems obvious, which is to not deliver a fatal blow to the, to the person, he sort of thinks, if he's thinking at all, that he's going to be clever and cut this person's head off so they never have the chance to return the blow. Well, of course, the Green Knight being not quite human, uh, after getting his head chopped off by Sir Gowan, stands back up and says, okay, I'll see you in a year, and walks out, or rides out. And that's the setup for the story. So yeah, when you say that Sir Gowan is 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 marching towards his death, uh, yeah, he thinks he's going to go get his head cut off, because that's what he did to the Green Knight. Right, right, yeah. So um, I don't know like how... I mean, depending on how people have encountered the story before, I know when I read it in college that, you know, yeah, I know he's going to go eventually like face um, the Green Knight, but I'm wondering like, is he going to lose his head now? Um, I I guess I didn't think about it in those very morbid terms of, oh, this isn't just a fairy tale of a knight going to go face his enemy. He is, um, he's, this is a death march. Um, and the fact that Gowan even goes at all is, is really impressive. Um, and so I really liked, uh, them focusing on that dark tone. I don't think that was everybody's expectation or cup of tea, but also it makes logical sense to me. Um, Yeah. And I think it also is more fitting with the kind of the, the fairy stories and, and fables that would have been told at that time. I mean, these aren't the Disney versions of the fables that are being told around that, uh, around this time. These are, these are the versions that involved a lot of, uh, a lot of death and horrible things happening to people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the Grimm fairy tales were not just named for the Brothers Grimm. The uh, the the uh, homonym works real well with that. Exactly. Too. Yeah, that's a. I think that's that's a really interesting point uh, in the film's favor. I think to have that darker tone. This is Tony, Network Chief of We Made This. As you know, our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content, such as the episode you've just listened to or you're just about to listen to. We'd love to keep the lights on a bit longer if you're able to support our network on Patreon. For just £2 a month, you get your name in lights on the website and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent Pool on podcasting, pop culture, and you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. So just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash we made this to get the ball rolling. Now, Back to your scheduled programming. Now, I really want to discuss like the last 30 minutes of the film, but I wanted to ask you before we get into that, um, did you have other points of discussion you wanted to bring up uh, regarding the film aside from that last 30 minutes? Well, I think we can get into, um, because I think we can't talk about the last uh, 
act of the movie without talking about the themes and stuff. So I, I think we can just get into it and then uh, we can circle back and see if there's anything else we, we didn't touch on that we wanted to. Sure. Okay. All right. So again, this is a spoilery podcast. Um, if you haven't figured that out already. Um, so if you've not seen the green Knight, um, I would recommend you push go, pause. Go do that. <laughs> go, go, go watch that. Um, in the theater, if you can, if it's safe for you to do so, or, or uh, give it a rent on Amazon or wherever it is you prefer to rent your movies digitally. Um, but uh, the last 30 minutes of the film really took me by surprise. And it would have taken me more by surprise if my husband hadn't seen the film first and said, the last 30 minutes of the movie is a silent film. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> That's, I mean, I, I was expecting the film to be a little on the weird side and have a, a you know, a, a dark, like strange, like dark fantasy tone, but I was definitely not expecting the last 30 minutes of the movie to be a silent film. And that's effectively what it is. We have no dialogue. We have um, Gowan running for his life, running back uh, to Camelot, um, you know, taking up again with Essel, getting her pregnant. Um, he ends up being the one to inherit uh, King Arthur's throne. Um, we watch him um, have a son uh, with Essel. Essel kind of gets abandoned um, because she's not of noble blood. He marries a noble woman. Uh, you know, he's now the king. Uh, his son dies in battle. Like, you know, there's, he goes through this life and, you know, there's just no happiness or joy for Gowan. Um, no. Because yeah. he runs. He, yeah. He's, he's run from what he knows is his rightful fate. He knows like, you know, on his word, he said he would return and allow himself to receive the same blow that he dealt. And, uh, but he, you know, part and parcel with this is the, uh, mystical green sash that, um, um, he's given initially by his mother, um, when he leaves and it's supposed to protect him from harm, he loses it. And then he gets it back again when he visits, um, the Lord's castle uh, right before he goes to the green chapel. So even though he's got, you know, he's made it away from the green Knight, he refuses to take off the sash. Um, and he's, he's very superstitious about it. Cause you see him like he's, he's having sex and he, he's taken everything off except that sash. Um, yeah. He's been told when he was given it by his, his mother, who in the movie is is Morgan Le Fay, uh, and and it's it's strongly suggested she has some facility with magic. She tells him that she's woven in a charm that will protect him. It will keep, prevent him from dying. I think is what she says, um, and she gives it to him. And so yeah, that's what he's wearing around, tied around his waist when he's kneeling uh, at the feet of the Green Knight, preparing to take his head off. And yeah, like like you said, he runs. And we see this fan, this this astonishing, you know, 10, 15 minute straight sequence of just he runs, he go, he returns to Camelot, he's healed, he he impregnates Essel, that baby is taken away from her, he marries someone who's considered acceptable, and his kingdom uh, crumbles around him. And 
and we we see this whole sequence and with this and and you're right you're right it it is a substantial part of this movie like it goes on long enough that you're starting to wonder like i started to wonder myself in the movie theater like wow i did not really expect them to just keep going like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sure enough uh they don't because as enemies batten down the door to his throne room he sits alone on his throne and he removes the green sash from his waist finally and his head falls off it's this astonishing image in a movie full of them and then we right back to uh he's kneeling at the feet of the green knight and none of this has actually happened he's had a vision of the future of what would happen if he runs away yet again that whole sequence really took me aback because I'm watching this and I'm like, you know what? I know it's been a while since I've read this, but I don't remember this part at all. <laughs> yeah, right. No, um, I exactly. Like it's been 20 years since I've read the story. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure this is not in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I am just totally missing that part, please uh, <laughs> uh, hit us up on social media. Let us know, hey, you missed that. Um, that's fine. But um, to the best of my knowledge, that is that is a pure uh, no, that, that's an ar- artistic movie. Yeah. artistic choice um, by uh, David Lowry, and you know what? It works uh, because what that does for me, at least, that whole sequence it really demonstrates Gowan's wrestling with wanting to be somebody of renown, but also wanting to be somebody who has integrity. And those things are not always, but, um, you know, they, they, they can be mutually exclusive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, um, and it also ties to, I, I think when Essel and he have a scene earlier, I think it's the two of them. Mm-hmm. And, he's talking about wanting to be great and she says isn't like why do you need to be great like isn't isn't good enough uh why can't you just focus on being a good man instead of a great one something along those lines and this kind of goes to that too where you see his future his 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 greatness flash before his eyes he he becomes king of all the land and and he becomes a great man but he does so by failing to become a good one and he doesn't have a good life, even though he has a great life. And all of that is tied into what flashes through his head there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just, as, so I've, I've already mentioned I, uh, earlier in the podcast, I really love Gwendolyn Christie. Um, part of the reason I love Gwendolyn Christie is because I feel like she is the only person on this planet who could have portrayed um, someone with the kind of integrity that Brienne of Tarth has. Um, Brienne of Tarth is my favorite character in all of fiction. Um, partially because I feel like she's one of the only times I've seen a, a woman like myself represented on TV or film or in any form of visual media or, you know, written media for that matter. But uh, one of the reasons I love Brienne uh, is because I love her integrity. I love how she tries you know, even if it's to her own detriment to keep her word and do what she believes to be just and right, even if it is at her, uh, her own expense or detriment, doing the right thing is not always easy and it is often costly. Um, and I just am 
always just flabbergasted and blown away by anybody who has that kind of integrity because it's so rare. Um, and I think Gowan really has that a similar kind of struggle here where he's like, I know I am going to die if I do this. Is it that important that I actually keep my word? Um, and that tension, you know, you know, that, that conversation is really, uh, pertinent. Um, I, I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it, you know, why do you have to be a great man? Why not just be a good man? Um, you know, again, I don't, I'm of the opinion that good men are great men, whether they're men of great renown or whatever. <laughs> I think the world is in dire need of, you know, good people in general. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I love this tension that Gowan feels in trying to be, uh, you know, wanting to be someone who's respected and renowned, but at the same time, knowing it's the better thing to be a good man and do what's right and keep yeah. my word. Yeah. He also wants those things, but is is not really willing until the very end to do what is necessary to get, to achieve those ends. You know, mm -hmm. he's not, a knight in the beginning, even though yes, he's younger than Arthur, but he's not, he's not Dev Patel of the slumdog millionaire. He's not a, he's not a man in his, you know, late teens, early twenties who, you know, like you would maybe expect him to be carrying on the way he does like spending uh, all day, every day in a brothel when he isn't living at home with his mommy still. Mm -hmm. And he's done nothing with his life. He has a lot of growing to do. You know, he has that, that beginning, that introduction to him in the brothel, like he's, you know, he's, he says, you know, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And that kind of lays like the thematic groundwork for the rest of the movie. <laughs> um, you know, his last line in the movie is to declare that he is ready. And I think that speaks to his growth. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that whole sequence was just so effective in demonstrating that growth. And him ultimately making the decision, you know, I've got to do this, you know, no matter what it costs me. I know if I don't do this, I will regret it until, you know, the end of my life. I thought that was just really, really uh, poignant and, and uh, a, a really great way to illustrate that idea. Definitely. So any other um, comments or thoughts on that, uh, that last uh, sequence? Yeah, I really liked that it kind of called back to the, the vision of the future that we get at the end. Uh, there's this great sort of 360 camera rota rotation uh, that takes in the entirety of of the throne room as, as the enemies are at the door. And it, it refers back to uh, an earlier shot that we had um, much earlier in his journey where he was had been tied up by some bandits and, and kind of left for dead in the woods. And he has this, this vision of the future that's told through this you know, 360 degree rotating panning shot that concludes with a vision of his own skeleton, his own dead body. If, mm -hmm. if he doesn't take action, if he doesn't do, uh, do what needs to be done in that situation, uh, he's going to die. And he, you know, it, it, at the very end, that's that kind of clue that we, that we get visually that this is, another vision and uh you know it's him realizing that uh nope i need to i need uh, there's something else i need to do i need to i need to do something or this isn't going to end well for me right uh i liked that and his 
uh, his early scene, Dev Patel's early scene with uh, King Arthur, when King Arthur expresses regret at not knowing Gowan better before then and invites him to sit at his side. I don't know what it was, like the performance, the music, the the pace, but I was really moved by that scene. It's such a simple, such a simple scene, but uh, the, the, the dialogue was beautiful and the, the, the music and the lighting and the performances were, were real. I, I just, I really dug it. Um, did you have any really favorite standout like moments in the movie that you really liked? Gosh, <laughs> it's, it's such a beautiful film. Like it's, it's, it's uh, difficult to choose. I will say that one scene that, uh, that made me laugh every time was when he is at the house uh, with uh, Winifred, uh, Aaron Kellyman. And uh, when she asks him to retrieve her head uh, from the bottom of the lake, and uh, he says, what would you give me if I did? And she says, why would you ask me that? <laughs> like, yeah. Why would you ever ask me that? Yeah. yeah I love like, that. Um, yeah, it's just, such a good point. And another yeah. illustration of, uh, hey, buddy, you've still got some some learning to do if you ever want to actually become a knight. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah. That's, uh, you know, if you're a knight, you do you do the right thing because that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's you not get the satisfaction of having helped someone in need. That's what you right. get. <laughs> right. Um, but that, that was just one scene that just made me laugh yeah. every single time. Just, uh, I don't, I don't know. There's, I don't know other than that. Is there one particular scene? I really like what you said about, um, Arthur calling Gowan to his side. Like, you know, I, I feel like I don't know you as well as I should. And, um, as somebody who has a niece and a nephew in another state and I don't get to spend a lot of time with them, I, I kind of felt um, a lot of, um, a lot of that. You just felt a certain twinge. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what you mean, Arthur. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, that's probably why I responded to it as well that way, mm-hmm. because I, I recognize some of that feeling in myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, like, uh, this is a great film. I'm, I feel like with each, I, you know, I've, again, I've, I've gotten to see it twice. I feel like with each viewing, I'm going to be pulling out another layer um, or find something new to, uh, to really zero in on. But I think overall for me, just the theme of what does it mean to be a person of integrity? Um, someone who keeps their word um, that is something that is just so resonant for me, um, because it's something I, I mean, obviously I'm human. I'm not perfect. Um, I'm not going to do this right every time, but it's something that I, I really aspire to. Um, and so I just, I feel that real deep in my bones, if that makes sense. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. a character who isn't a traditional heroic character. It's a deeply, deeply flawed dude in his in his 30s who's not um got his life together and has to figure it out uh Mm -hmm. it's told through this epic medieval fantasy lens but it's a story that i think a lot of people can relate to on some level yeah yeah um i think we tend to um uh for 
lack of better terminology like um, deify um, knights and uh, you know you, we tend to think of them in the fairy tale sense. Uh, they all they're always um, chivalrous and they always do the right thing and you know and they don't even have to think about it. It's not a struggle. This is a very um, it's a very human uh, fairy tale, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so, like you said, there's so much stuff in here. It's so dense. Like we didn't talk about the fact that there's, there's giants. Uh, yeah. There's, what was there's, that? there's a mushroom, <laughs> there's a mushroom trip. There's a, 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 a CGI Fox who talks at one point. Uh, there's a whole lot of shit that we never talked about um, that is in this movie. There's so much stuff here. I can't wait to see it again. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so much to unpack. Um, I think this is one I'm going to revisit. Uh, it's definitely going to be added onto my, uh, non-traditional Christmas movies list. Yeah, for um, sure. Def- but definitely something I'm very eager to revisit and subject other people to. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Cool. Well, Ian, did you have anything else you wanted to, uh, talk about in regards to the green Knight? final thoughts? No, I think, uh, you know, I'll probably have a whole another episode's worth of things to talk about the next time I see it. For sure. For sure. So on, uh, on a scale of one to 10, uh, where does the green Knight land for you? Uh, this has got to be a nine or a 10 out of 10 for me. This is definitely my jam. Uh, I didn't, feel like I needed to understand every last thing in order to enjoy it, which is, which is good because part of what I appreciate about it is how much I have to think and wonder about afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, like the atmosphere of it really drew me in right away and uh, never let me go. The pace is not going to be for everybody, but for me, it, it was right up my alley. So yeah, strong, like nine or 10 out of 10. This is going to be one of my favorite movies this year. Wow. Wow. That's 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 definitely high praise. I think I'm probably going to make it land, um, and you know, and this may change with subsequent viewings, but I'm going to make it land somewhere in the seven and a half eight range for me. Um, this is a little heavier than a lot of the other films that I watch, but I really love the aesthetic. I love how the score worked to heighten tension when it needed to. I'm a drummer. I really loved that steady percussive beat whenever, you know, he was getting uh, attacked by those bandits uh, and whenever the tension was heightened. Um, I just thought that was really great. But again, the cozy feel for this, uh, this is definitely, again, it's going on my Christmas movie watch list. I think that's maybe why it's not as high, uh, just because I, I tend to think about Christmas films differently. And in my head now, I think this is definitely leaning more towards dark fantasy Christmas film. But I think of the line in, in the, you know, the old song, yeah, um, uh, scary ghost stories from Christmas is long, long ago. Um, I feel like uh, the Green Knight fits that bill. Um so uh, I'm curious now to see what other uh, work that David Lowry is going to do. I'm eager now to go check out his other films because I've not seen any of them to my knowledge. So, yeah. So, so I'm going to give it seven and a half at uh, eight range. So Right on. Very cool. Um, Ian, thank you so much for uh, talking with me about The Green Knight. Uh, do you have any... Um, uh, projects you want to plug, any social media that you want to share? Uh, uh, yeah, how can no, our no, listeners connect with you? Not really on social media that much, but I am on the network here quite a bit. I pop up on Real Talk all the time. 
Uh, I also am going to be popping up on a few episodes of a new project, Movie Versaries, that Bo Nicholson is doing. I'm going to be uh, launching a Star Wars podcast a little bit later this year called The Way. And I'm currently a, a co-host on We Are Starfleet with Mike Slammer. That's our Star Trek Discovery uh, recap podcast that is going to be launching back again in November when uh, se- uh, season four of Discovery premieres. Very cool. Very cool. And I'm, I'm going to be joining you guys on the We Are Starfleet on the uh, season three recap episode. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I had forgotten that that was uh, that, that we had gotten you to agree to that. That's great. Yeah, um, Star Trek is my jam. I love Star Wars. I love Star Trek. Um, if you had told 10-year-old me I would like Star Trek more than Star Wars, I would have punched you and called you a liar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I definitely grew up on both, but I think I w- we were more uh, ever so slightly more of a Star Trek household, and that just kept kept going on to my, in, into my adulthood. I, I love both. Oh, that's, uh, that's, Star that's Trek's awesome. my first love, yeah. That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to uh, both that uh, Star Wars and Star, uh, those Star Trek projects. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So if you folks want to connect with me, you can do that in a few ways. You can hit me up on the tweets. Um, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at The Nerdy Blogger. You can like my Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Nerdy Blogger. You can read my blog, nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. I am also a staff writer at fangirlish.com, where I do a lot of writing about Star Wars and Star Trek. Um, I am the resident Trek expert over there, so I'm covering all the Star Trek shows, including Lower Decks and um, Discovery. So really looking forward to Discovery coming back later this year. Uh, I also cover The Mandalorian as well. So it sounds like uh, you and I need to talk a little more about this sort of thing, Ian. Yeah, definitely. For sure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, The other way that you can um, hear my words is you can uh, subscribe to the Sci-Fi 5 podcast. It is an official Roddenberry podcast. Um, Roddenberry are the Star Trek people, in case you didn't know. Uh, But Sci-Fi 5 is five minutes of science fiction history, five days a week. I write a few scripts for them a month. So if you want to learn a little bit of sci-fi history and some uh, space program history, uh, that's a good one to check out. And it's only five minutes of your day. Otherwise, you can hear me here on uh, We Made This. I've been on some episodes of Real Talk. I'm going to be doing some Star Trek stuff. Was just on an episode of Rarely Going. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be talking uh, a little bit about Miss Marvel and She-Hulk later uh, as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to uh, getting to uh, talk about all the things I love here at the We Made This Podcast Network. So thank you for joining us for another episode. And remember... As I mentioned, we are all part of the We Made This podcast network. Please subscribe to Real Talk and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to help out our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon if you go to patreon.com slash we made this. The Green Knight is not all we're discussing, so we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed on the network here in just a moment. We'll see you next time at the movies for more Real Talk. Elsewhere on We Made This. Podcast 616, a Marvel Universe podcast. I definitely noticed that they weren't the actual voice actors. Uh, It didn't bother me. It didn't feel strange or anything. I mean, we as viewers have become so accustomed to seeing, you know, Chris Pratt as Star-Lord, or Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa, or Dave Bautista as Drax, that in these instances when we hear their voices and they don't necessarily match it's like oh wait a second that's not the right person but 
you know, stepping outside of it for a moment, you know, these are comic book characters. We're we're introducing the multiverse, right? And now we are introducing all of these um, tangents of stories that can go in any different kind of direction. So they don't need to be the same actor. They don't need to be the same voice one-to-one in my mind. And as a fan, I can accept this. I'm okay with that. The Movie Palace Podcast. Yeah, is Truffaut somebody you found yourself drawn to over the years? Have you watched like a lot of his films? So uh, just in terms of like French New Wave, I think I've seen more Jean-Luc Godard than I've seen Francois Truffaut. But I really do love Francois Truffaut. I love his attention to um, realism and to small aspects of people's lives. And I love his stories and how character driven they are. I've seen like Shoot the Piano Player, Jules and Jim, which isn't one of my favorites, but I'm trying to appreciate it more. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast. Craig Charles looks f***ing cool as Sebastian Doyle. (laughs) I'd love to look that cool. Oh, that (laughs) Craig Charles tends to look cool all of the time, though. Well, true, but he looks more sophisticated cool than rocker dude with a band cool. And I'm getting old, I want to look sophisticated cool rather than rocker dude cool. (laughs) Craig Charles had apparently said that you know it's um, it was great to be able to play this version of Lister because that's more like me. <laughs> oh, I'm the cool yes. guy, <laughs> uh, which I thought was great. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Mm-hmm.